And Brady Farkas show here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The rare two-guest show today. Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio was with us in the 5 o'clock hour. That interview is up on our podcast channel and joining us now. As he does every Thursday, a little later than usual today, but always appreciate him making time for us, is our ESPN MLB insider Buster Olney. Buster, how are you? I'm uh, doing well. Uh, you know, it's very interesting watching the Red Sox game today. A lot of good things happening. Yeah, a lot of good things happening. And you know, you've you've been around players enough in your in your career, Buster. I feel like when guys start to figure it out at the plate, you really start to see them use all fields, and that's exactly what Alex Verdugo is doing right now. He's hitting the ball with authority, gap to gap, and. I know small sample size be damned, but Jaron Duran is now starting to figure out to go the other way, too. That's a huge part of a player's development. Yeah, and Yoshida, too. Yeah. Uh, although he's an older player today, you know, to see him take that simple approach in that last play to parents, take the ball to the left field. Look, in, in Alex Verdugo's case, he's always been a guy who is seen as, as being a really good hitter uh, from the days that he was in the Dodgers organization, coming up through the minor leagues. You know, really good athlete. Uh, obviously someone who, you know, with enough talent that the Red Sox would be comfortable making the centerpiece of that Mookie Betts trade. But it really did feel like that this winter, he kind of, he, you know, Alex Cora called him out in a good way by basically challenging him in to be in better condition. Uh, and he uh, met that challenge. And he's clearly in better shape at this stage in his career. You know, he's probably at the point where he's at a crossroad between being a journeyman or being somebody better than that. Uh, and it's fun to see his enthusiasm uh, and, and as, he, as he seems to ascend to, to the next level where he, where he really needs to get to. Buster, I have patience, and I'm not trying to be like big market radio Boston loudmouth guy when I ask this, but we've talked for weeks about should the Red Sox use a six-man rotation and how will they handle everybody getting healthy and now Bayo's back and Paxton's close and Hauk was really good today. They do seem to have a glut of starters, and Cutter Crawford was really good the other day in long relief going six and a third on that marathon Monday. What all this is leading to is how long can you afford to let Corey Kluber look like this and stay in the rotation? Well, I, I think we got a clue uh, with that today from the Arizona Diamondbacks, <laughs> mm -hmm. who, you know, after watching Madison Bumgarner struggle in his first four starts, after not, uh, you know, not being that good in recent years, you know, he had a 10-3-2 ERA, and they cut him loose this morning. Essentially, yeah. they designated him for assignment. They're going to probably wind up dumping him. Uh, I think the fact that it's not like the Red Sox have a long-term investment on Corey Kluber. It's not like they got, you know, a 25-year-old pitcher and they're looking to have him for the next three or four years. He's plugging a hole for this year, and if the pitch is great, it works out for them. Uh, if he's not pitching well, then I do think they need to move on. I mean, let's face it, even, uh, it, it, you know, no matter what happened this year, I, I think it is a, a an important year for the front office in terms of taking a step forward, and that's going to be measured by the fan base and wins and losses. And just as the Diamondbacks made the decision, look, we're trying to move up, we're trying to, to, to win more games this year, I think that's what the Red Sox have to decide. What's their best path to, to winning the most games? And if Corey Kluber's not going to help in that, then they have to move on and, and use the guys they have. You know, I don't know that I, I don't think it's fair, obviously, to expect him to be like this every time out, but Chris Sale gave a glimpse to what is still left in the tank the other night against Minnesota, those eleven strikeouts in six innings. What are you hearing about Sale after that performance? 
Yeah, that it was uh, part of the reason why he did what he did was because of substantive changes that he made. You know, the, the day after that, I, I tweeted out uh, a, you know, a list, a percentage breakdown of the pitchers he'd thrown and just noted that it was the lowest percentage what he, he had in that start of four-seam fastballs that he had thrown this year and that he had thrown a higher percentage of sinkers. And it's so funny, but within a, a couple hours I got, you know, in uh, speaking with a source said, yeah, there's going to be changes with that. He basically ditched his sinker in that last start. He went all four steamers, change-ups, and sliders, and he was a different pitcher. And, and, and that's the thing. Look, the, the, you know, as people talked about Chris Sale, I think it was always important to know where his fastball velocity was. As you know, that was okay. It wasn't like suddenly he was throwing 82 miles an hour, so you knew he had weapons to deal with. With Chris, I think two things. One, he had to get the right pitch mix, which I think he did. And the other thing, too, is I know the criticism he takes from Red Sox fans is pretty steep. He beats up on himself because of the, the, the struggles that he's had uh, as much as anybody beats up on him. And I think he kind of needed to cut himself a break a little bit, forgive himself for being injured, and just focus on what he could do going forward. And maybe the other day was the first step in that regard. Buster Olney, ESPN MLB Insider with us here at Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV AM and FM. Buster, I don't know if you saw, today was a very important birthday. Fenway Park turned 111 today. First game was April 20th, 1912. I'm curious, your best Fenway memories. Oh, my goodness, I have so many of them. <laughs> I'm uh, sure you do. Oh. You know, I, I mean, when I was 11 years old, seeing the game, uh, playoff game between Oakland and the Red Sox with Pee Wee Reese, uh, I can remember going to a, a game, a first game, a doubleheader, uh, Red Sox and Brewers, 11 home runs between the two teams in one game, which was amazing. Uh, you know, being in the ballpark for Don Zimmer and Pedro Martinez, that was absolutely crazy. The mm. Red Sox comeback. Um, you know, and I got to play in, in games in Fenway Park is in the media game that's played between the Red Sox media and the and the, the New York media, and I got a hit to left field, which for me, <laughs> as someone who grew up in New England, was a really cool wow. thing. That's absolutely awesome. I love that story. <laughs> uh, you know, let's let's transition to something not as happy, which is you mentioned Oakland. So let's talk about what's happening there. The the story came out yesterday. The statement from the team came out yesterday. It seems like a foregone conclusion at this point. The A's are moving to Las Vegas. Yep. Is is that the case? There are, are there still legal hurdles to overcome in either place, or this is going to happen? It's just a question of when. Well, uh, it's either over or it's one of the better examples of brinkmanship we've ever seen between a city and a team because the mayor of Oakland, as you saw last night, announced the negotiations are over as far as they're concerned. And, and you know, and, and maybe it was – Fated to be that way. Look, they, they've been trying and tr for years and years and years and years and years to get a ballpark uh, for the athletics. They talked about San Jose, but that's in the Giants' territory. They talked about Fremont. Uh, you know, they looked at different sites in Oakland. In the end, if the Giants are not going to relent and give up some of their territory for Oakland, then it probably is the best thing for that, that franchise to move. But, I mean, let's face it, with what, how the owners handled everything there, with the way that they're tanking this year, they basically run the team into the ground. It does remind you of the movie Major League, uh, where, you know, the, 
they absolutely the, you have the owner essentially seemingly rooting against the team. It's an embarrassment for a franchise that, as you know, uh, in the American in American League history, the Athletics might be second behind the Yankees in terms of total success, and yet you have a situation in which again their fans are going to be left behind. I guess I'll ask you this question, Buster, because I saw this as a Seattle fan when the Sonics left and got moved to Oklahoma City. So my question is, how much of a good faith effort did A's ownership put in to keep the team there? Because I I guess I would cut a little more slack if we could say, honestly, they tried as hard as they could for a decade, and this is the only option left on the table. But for me... It feels like the Sonics playbook where the team gets gutted, the team gets bad, the fans don't want to come, and then the fans get blamed, and I don't have sympathy for that. Well, and, you know, it really sort of depends on which standard you're holding them to in terms of how hard they tried. If you're holding them to the standard of what we've seen with a lot of uh, professional sports teams where they get significant public funding, uh, then, you know what, they then they made – uh, measured against that, a, a good faith effort. If you compare them with what the Giants did, which is to essentially do a privately funded park, build it in a great spot, go in there, kick butt financially, and absolutely build this fi- you know, a, a money monster for ownership, they failed terribly. Mm. And you know what? For year after year after year to run out, uh, you know, or have a situation where they're constantly asking the front office to turn over the roster to, you know, trade guys from Tim Hudson to Mark Mulder, uh, you know, more recently guys like Matt Olson. It's terrible. Yeah, absolutely gutted for those fans, and the A's have succeeded for 50 years plus in Oakland, so I think the fan support certainly could have been good. Um, Hey, let me ask you something I was talking to Tom Karen about yesterday, and, and I'm curious what you're hearing about this. I think we all like the rule changes, right? We all like the rules. But what I don't like is when a pitcher is mid-motion and the umpire comes out and blows off the play. I am convinced that Ryan Tapera of the Angels got hurt the other day against the Red Sox because he stopped his motion at full throttle in the middle of it because of the umpire calling the violation. Are you hearing any worries about that leading to injury? Yeah, I think uh, you know you speak to individual pitchers and they've raised that. You know, Joe West, the former umpire, is now on social media, he's on Twitter. You know, he's mentioned that possibility of something that might happen. Um, but I, I, it's really hard to actually quantify that that's the case. And like you mentioned, the Ryan Tapera case. I mean, how often have we seen in recent years where, you know, just as the pitcher's going to his motion, the batter will call timeout. And what the, you know, the manager, the pitching coaches tell the pitcher is, look, you've got to follow through. You know, you've got to go through with your delivery and, and throw the ball. And I, I kind of wonder if if, hitter, if pitchers need to be back in that habit when once they start the delivery, no matter what the umpire signals, they need to at least go through the, the their arm motion. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. That is something that is being mentioned by pitchers as possibly being a you know an unanticipated uh, you know unanticipated uh, consequence of the rule changes. I'll get you out of here on this. Speaking of rule changes. What did you think of the announcement this week about more changes coming to the Atlantic League, kind of the Major League Baseball petri dish here of uh, looking at test changes, the single disengagement rule, the courtesy pinch runner rule like Little League, and uh, the double hook DH rule? Yeah, not not wild about them. Yes, uh, me either. I, I, you know, for most of them, I would say the double hook DH rule, 
I, I do think it's going to be part of the effort by uh, Major League Baseball to try to restore the preeminence of starting pitchers, to oh. stop this parade of relievers. Uh, if you can somehow you know, move that effort forward, it can only be a good thing. Oh, I disagree, Buster, and the only reason is because if I if my starting pitcher gets hurt in the first inning, I get penalized by losing my DH, or if my starting pitcher gives up seven runs in the first inning, I'm now down seven runs, I've lost my pitcher, and I can't come back further because my DH is gone. I, I don't like that, Buster. Well, tough. <laughs> I also wouldn't like it if I were a pitcher who's struggling through it and my manager makes me stay out there and it leads to injury because he doesn't want to lose his DH. Well, I'm hoping that everybody, that the, the training goes a little bit further where they can get starting pitchers to, to be in the game longer. Because I, I do, uh, although this year, let's face it, it's been a real positive uh, to see the time of game goes down. And maybe that's not as much of a, a push, but the, the number of relievers used in recent years, not good. Yeah, I'm with you on that.